This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Pete Payne is a pastor and is preaching this message. We are going to be back in the book of Acts. We've taken six weeks off from Acts to go and study just some of the most glorious language in the entire Bible in Romans 8. We've kind of gone up with Paul into the heavenly realms and heard some things that are almost too wonderful to hear. And today we are coming back down to earth. One of my favorite movies is We Were Soldiers, with the exception of all the language used by the sergeant major, which you have to click off. But it's a great movie. They study, they know all the truth, they know what they need to do, they know the theory, and then they land in the war zone and they have to put into practice the things that they have studied and learned. And that's really what happens today. We didn't originally plan to take a diversion into Romans 8, uh, but we felt that the Lord led us to do that right at this break point in the book of Acts. So for the last six weeks we've been studying things like there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we read this morning, nothing can separate us from His love. And here, as we get back into Acts, these truths that Paul has been talking about in Romans 8 are going to be vital to our understanding of what we read here. There's a three-day story that we're going to read here in Acts 9. Uh, We're going to see that the power of the resurrection will be on display. So it's not just in the heavenlies, it's right in our face, right on earth. As we read this story, we're going to observe, as we read in Romans 8, that the gospel brings with it a guarantee of God's love forever and a guarantee of suffering for now. Both of those things were in Romans 8. We're going to see them on display today in this story. And we're going to note one final thing, that God's work in the lives of two men, Saul and Ananias, help us to address two potential doctrinal errors as we live in the real world. The first one is that our works earn us salvation and lack of works earns us condemnation. That's a lie. The second false teaching or potential error is that nothing we do matters because... We've been set free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, so therefore I can just keep on sinning so that grace may increase. Both of those, we'll see in this story, are going to be proven to be true. They're going to be proven to be false ways as we study the way and talk this through as we watch the conversion of Saul. So for the purpose of a quick review, since we've been out of Acts for a month and a half, Acts is a book that's in the Bible, as many of you know, and... We've been through the first seven chapters, so let me give you a quick synopsis of the first seven chapters. Jesus ascended into heaven before he did that. He gave them a command, stay here in Jerusalem until you receive power. So they did that, they prayed, they waited, the Holy Spirit came, and they began to preach. They began to do what he told them to do. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So they did that. And the church grew. 3,000 were added. They multiplied. That's what we're calling this series in Acts. Multiply. The church multiplied as they began to rely on the Spirit's power and preach the word. People came and were added to the church. Then they became persecuted. The first persecution came in the form of a warning. Don't do this anymore. They continued to do it. They defied that. The church grew. Then they had this amazing church service where two people died right in front of them because they had lied to the Holy Spirit and great fear fell on the church. But even in the midst of that, the church continued to grow. It multiplied. The Spirit continued to move and 
additional persecution came. This time it was with the warning and a beating. So the persecution was getting worse. The church continued to grow and the Spirit poured out power and words and miracles were happening. The church multiplied. Then the church had this internal growing pain where the widows over here were complaining about the widows over here and people weren't getting food. So the church came together, came up with a plan, and the, and the Scripture says everybody was happy about it, and that is the last time in church history that that has ever happened, that everybody's been happy with the plan. But that's what happened. The church was growing. Then persecution increased. This time it was warning, it was beating, and it was death as Stephen was stoned. And the cloaks we read were thrown down of the people that threw the stones at the feet of a young man named Saul, who's the man, that's the first time we see him, but we will be studying him today. Then, as the church was scattered as a result of the persecution, a great persecution that arose, they were scattered out from Jerusalem to to Judea. Philip went to Samaria. So the very thing that Jesus had told them that they were going to be started happening. In the midst of persecution, the church multiplied. And began to do. And today we're coming to the next circle. As Jesus is going to present to us, the Spirit through the Word will present to us the next ring. We're going out from Samaria now, preparing to go to the uttermost parts of the earth as Saul is going to be converted, become a Christian, and he will become the the apostle to the Gentiles. So let's read from Acts 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the first 19 verses. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any there belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. 
This story is so significant that Luke is going to include it in the book of Acts three times. This time where Luke is telling the story, two other times where Saul, to become Paul himself, would share his story. This is his story. This is where God met him and turned his life upside down. Some of the theologians, historians would say this is the most important conversion in the history of the church. Maybe, maybe not. We may get to heaven and find out there was one that was far more important than this. I don't know. But I think Luke wants us to see something in this story for us today as we travel forward in time from the street called Straight in Damascus to the street called John W. Eliot in Frisco, Texas, that the power of the resurrected Christ calls enemies into his family and then sends his family out to die for his glory. The power of the resurrected Christ calls enemies into his family and sends the family out to die for the sake of his glory. So I'm titling this message, Three Days, Two Men, and One Way. Three Days, Two Men, and One Way. I'm not going to tell you any stories because this is in itself a story. The setting is near and then inside the Middle Eastern city of Damascus. The time was three days, probably in the early to mid-30s, that's 0030s A.D. It's the story of two men, Saul and Ananias. Both apparently were Jews. Saul was a Hellenistic Jew from the north Mediterranean area from Tarsus. He was a Pharisee trained by the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He was a leader among the opposition to the new sect which had become known as The Way. So that's why we read The Way. He was looking for followers of The Way. These were the followers and disciples of Jesus. We first met him, as we mentioned back in chapter 7, when the people that stoned Stephen threw their cloaks at his feet. He watched, he heard, he listened, he approved of Stephen's death. And then in chapter 8, he began to be a part of and a leader in this great opposition. He call, here's what he says about himself later. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This was, according to the Jewish traditions and according to the Pharisees, he was a really good guy. He was on track. He also wrote that he was advancing in Judaism, in his religion, beyond many of his own age among his people. So extremely zealous was he for the tradition of his fathers. We learn, though, that he had become this ruthless and brutal persecutor of the early church, leading the attacks, dragging off both men and women, bound probably to at least interrogation, beatings, and in many cases probably death as well. Here he has authority, he has letters written, given to him by the high priest. And at this time, what we know is that the high priest was able to get the authority of Rome behind him for these things. At this particular point in history, so Saul has letters in his hand from the high priest that have the authority of Caesar behind them to go to Damascus and say, if you belong to the way, you are coming with me. He was breathing out threats and murder. And as Luke uses this very rich language, these are things that speak of animals, wild animals, tearing their prey. Luke wants us to know this guy was not a good guy. He thought he was a good guy. Maybe the Pharisees thought he was a good guy. But Luke wants us to put Saul in the category of assassin, madman, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, other mass murderers, of a terrorist, of an avowed enemy of Jesus' people and all that they believe, and... 
What's worse, he was a committed believer. What he thought was true, he believed with all his heart. It's a very difficult kind of enemy. He thought that he was serving the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, protecting his people from the dangerous error of the cult or the sect that had become known as the way. Now, most scholars think, to look at our second man, that Ananias was a Jew, probably from Damascus, who had become a disciple of Jesus. We don't know much about him. He appears here for the first time in the scripture. He appears once again in, in Paul's account of, his, uh, of this conversion in uh, Acts 22, and then we never hear from him again. There are three Ananiases in the book of Acts. The one that was killed because he lied to the Holy Spirit. At the end of the book, we'll hear about an Ananias who is a high priest, and then this one. Don't confuse the three, because the other two aren't Ananiases that we want to emulate. This one is. Okay? He was possibly among the leaders, maybe, of one of the house churches in Damascus. We don't know how he came to believe in Jesus. We don't know who preached the gospel to him. He knew about Saul, though, as we just read. He knew about the evil that Saul was putting onto the church, what he was doing. He heard of all these things. He knew that Saul had these letters, so somehow that word had come forth. He knew that Saul was a man to be feared and avoided. Think about people in your life. Think about people in the world today. That, would be, that should be feared and avoided. That's who this man was. So three days, two men, both Jews, one who was a hater and an enemy of Jesus, one who was a disciple of Jesus, one who was seeking to destroy the church, one who was seeking to build the church. But God, the creator of the universe, had decided that these two men going very different ways, their paths would intersect on the way. Over these three days... Something was going to happen that the ripple effects of which would come down and affect us even today, even on John W. Elliott Street in Frisco, Texas. So day one, two men, three days, three days, two men. So here we're going to go on day one. Saul, as it notes there, is on his way. See the language. He's on his way to track down members of the way in Damascus. We don't have any idea what Ananias was doing on the first day. He was minding his own business. At noon, Saul and his companions, we know nothing about them, were suddenly knocked to the ground by a light brighter than the sun. Saul saw someone, we learn this from later writings, the others saw no one. Saul was blinded, the others were not. Saul heard a voice, the others heard a sound. Saul and this figure that he saw had a conversation that turned his world, and actually turned your world, upside down. As well, we read in verse 4, Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, clearly not knowing who this is. He doesn't know who he is. Who are you? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Saul's unable to see... He's utterly dependent on these companions that we know nothing about to take him to his lodgings at the house of Judas. He spent the next day, three days, fasting and praying, probably in shock. Listen, everything he had believed all of his life, given himself to study for, was advancing in this belief faster than most of the people his own age. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, according to the law, perfectly righteous had just been dismantled and demolished. 
Put yourself in his position as we read through this story. He, his world has been completely obliterated. All that he had so vehemently believed about Jesus in the way was wrong. His life had been turned upside down. Try to imagine his thoughts, his fears, his despair as he sat alone in a strange house, in a strange city, unable to see, unable to care for himself, lost and hopeless with only this strange command that had come from this vision, from this person that he didn't know who it was, that had identified himself as Jesus, rise, go into the city, and you will be told what you are to do. That's all he has left. That's the only direction he has for the future, if he even has a future. So what does he know as he, as he lays there, as he's lying there, blind and helpless in the house of Judas? What does he know? He knows a couple of things. That Jesus... The crucified blasphemer and the opposer of everything he had ever known was alive. Jesus is alive. Could it be possible? Is this a dream? Is this a nightmare? He knew that the followers of Jesus, called the way, were right, and his way had been completely wrong. He had approved of Stephen being killed. He had gone on to commit atrocities, believing he was serving God, and all along, he'd been opposing God. He was an enemy of God, and he had not seen it. He'd been spiritually blind all along, and now he was physically blind as well. We don't know whether Saul Saul had ever seen Jesus before the crucifixion, But it's likely that he did. He was a Pharisee being trained by Gamaliel. He would have been at the temple. He would have, at the very least, he had heard all the things Jesus was doing. He was very opposed to Jesus. He may have been in the temple the day that Jesus healed the blind man, had the conversation with the Pharisees. Saul may have been there or some of his friends may have been there when Jesus said this, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees said, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Were those words ringing in his ears? Perhaps. But he did know that just like his ancestors before him, the men and the women that he had studied all of his life as he took the Old Testament scriptures and he read them and he memorized them and he looked at these passages and he looked at the people that had killed the prophets and had disobeyed God and been punished again and again and again, and he thought he was going to be better than his ancestors, he suddenly realized, not only am I just like them, I'm worse. I have persecuted and approved of the killing of one who is greater than any of the prophets. No one before died and then was raised and came and started a new people. Probably... We don't know exactly when he actually met Jesus. We don't know when he was actually transformed. But probably some of his thoughts went along this line. I'm a dead man. So what did he do during those three days? Did he cry out for mercy? Did he pray the Psalms, many of which he probably had memorized? 
Did he recall stories from his studies where God had relented and not poured out wrath on his people or even on other people? Even when their sins caused them to deserve his wrath? Were there these three days filled with terror? And darkness and the knowledge of the wrath and judgment of God being poured out on his foolishness and his pride and his rebellion and for the horrible things he had done to God's people and to the followers of Jesus. Think about this. Did he remember the stoning of Stephen? I know he did. He was there. He was an eyewitness. He approved of it. He had the cloaks of those who had stoned Stephen at his feet. Did he remember as he's in this house, as he's meditating, as he's praying, as he's crying out for mercy or whatever he was doing? Stephen's final powerful sermon, the only sermon apparently that Stephen ever delivered, where Stephen said in it, I see the heavens open and the Son of God seated at the right hand. He realizes all of a sudden Stephen saw Jesus. But the difference between Stephen and me is he knew Jesus. And I don't. Do you remember the even more powerful words that Stephen's, were Stephen's final words? Father, don't hold this sin against them. Were those things ringing in his mind? Did he say things like, Oh my God, what have I done? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help me. Save me, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me? Is there any hope? My eyes have seen the Messiah, but I rejoiced when he was killed. I've opposed him. I've opposed everything that he came to do. I'm no better than my fathers. I'm worse than my fathers. I'm the chief of sinners. Oh God, please have mercy on me, the greatest of sinners. Is there any hope left? For me, what was he doing during those three days? On day one and day two, like I said, we don't know what Ananias was doing. We don't know what he was doing while Saul prayed day one in his blinded condition, day two. But on the third day, we meet Ananias. He has a vision, just like Saul had had a vision. In this vision... He hears a voice calling his name, Ananias. Here I am, Lord. He knew the Lord, unlike Saul. Here's the command. Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Just a very direct, simple Easy to follow command from the Lord, or was it? So what ran through Ananias' mind? Again, use your imaginations. Saul of Tarsus? The Saul? The one who kills followers of Jesus, men and women? The one who has binding legal authority, who's well known for his hatred and ferocity? The one who watched as Stephen was stoned and has been responsible for all of the horrors that have been inflicted? on the followers of Jesus ever since, that's all my dreaming. Is this really you, God? Was it the hummus that I had last night? 
Like so many before him who had seen visions, he did have a few questions or comments for the Lord, just in case the Lord had missed something. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. In other words, are you sure about this, Lord? Are you sure you want me to do this? What are the implications of this command? Stephen preached the gospel in front of this man and he was stoned. Is this, is this the end for me? Should I put my house in order? Should I go to my wife and say, I may not be back. It's what I'm going to do today. The Lord told me, the Lord told me, I think, I think it was the Lord. The Lord told me that I was to go. And you know that man we've been hearing about that they said, Get as far away from him as you possibly can. He's a murderer. He's a terrorist. He hates us. I think the Lord wants me to go and lay hands on him and pray for him. But I don't, he didn't tell me whether I was coming back. I don't know whether I'll just be the, the next person to plant the seeds of the gospel. The Lord told me he's going to be a chosen instrument. What did his wife say? What did his children say? What was he thinking as he had to go and take this walk. Why are you asking me to do this? The Lord responds to him, go again. Rise and go, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Notice, as I said, there's no promise of safety. There's no guarantee that Ananias won't be the next victim. There's no assurance that his role will not be just to merely share the gospel and then be killed, stoned, hauled away. We don't, he doesn't know that. He might have been thinking, as I recall from my Torah studies, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were also instruments in the hands of God. And they had some bad things to do to us. So did he run like Jonah did before him? What did he do? Here's where we can learn so much from this believer He just simply obeyed the word of God. He did what God told him to do. All of these things, all of these things weighing on him, what does it say? So Ananias departed, walked, rode his donkey, whatever, laying his hands on, and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose, he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So here's, here's the amazing ending of this story. We don't know whether they had any contact, probably at least for a little while they did after this. We don't know what happened to Ananias. Uh, he disappears from Scripture after this story. But here's, here's how it ends. Saul, who had come to lay violent hands on Ananias, instead had these gentle hands of Ananias laid on him. The Holy Spirit came and brought healing. Saul, who had come to declare Ananias an enemy of God, hears from Ananias, Brother Saul. So we don't know exactly when Saul came to actually know that his sins had been forgiven. I believe it was at that moment. Don't know. Could have been before. So we don't know whether Ananias knew walking in that Saul was already converted because the Lord didn't tell him that. 
or whether, like I said, he was just going to be another voice who would then be silenced. We don't know what they knew. We don't know when exactly in these three days things happened. But what we do know is that God sent one of his children on a suicide mission to come in obedience, lay hands on the the most violent enemy of Christianity and say, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who's the one, by the way, that you met on the road, sent me to come and pray that you might receive the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. And in a later one, Paul, Paul will say, and then he told me, Arise and wash away your sins, be baptized. What we do know is this is just a powerful reminder of the truth that we're looking at. The power of the resurrected Jesus, the resurrected Christ, calls enemies into his family and then sends the family out to love, to suffer, to die for the sake of his glory. Imagine, I was listening to the songs we were singing this morning and Kendall did such a great job, but... When did Saul start to sing this song that we sang this morning? You can imagine as Ananias and Saul are there and they're having a meal together and Saul is and Ananias is baptizing Saul and he's a new brother and he's come into the kingdom and the guy who was just a few days before this violent enemy is now his brother. When did when did they start singing together? My God is strong enough to raise me from the grave. Your love is great enough to take away my shame. Your mercy reigns. My God is making new the wreckage of my heart. Your hand is reaching down to pull me from the dark. Your mercy reigns. Your mercy covers me. Your grace sustains. Your grace is all I need. Where did he begin to understand what he wrote in Romans 8? I'm a brother of Ananias. I'm a younger brother of Jesus. I am a child of this God that I've studied all my life but never known. And now I know Him. I'm His child. When did He come to the point of, of understanding what He wrote in Romans 8? There, there's no condemnation for me. I've killed people. I've hated Jesus. I wanted to put this very brother... In prison, I would have loved to have seen him killed and wiped off the face of the earth just a couple of days ago. There's no condemnation for me. I'm in Christ Jesus. His love will never let me go. I'm engraved. My life, my, all, my thing, all about me is engraved on his hand. Nothing can separate me from his love. It's somehow in here and over the next months and years as he learned, as he he took all that he knew and looked at the scripture and he said, Ah, I understand. Jesus was the key to unlocking all of these mysteries. And then he wrote and he writes for us. And again, the ripple effects of this meeting come down to this. Brother Saul. Did they sing Amazing Grace? No, because John Newton wrote it much later, but they could have sung Amazing Grace together. Saved a wretch like me. 
Another song we sing, you make your enemies your friends. Your family then, just like Ananias, you send out to love, to suffer, to die for the sake of glory. Listen, just as Saul had received letters written on parchment or papyrus or clay tablets or stone or something from the chief priests with the authority of Caesar, the most powerful man in the world at that time, he's coming to Damascus with this kind of authority in the name of Caesar. Ananias came with letters as well. Letters written on his heart. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, as I walk down the street called straight, maybe to my death, I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me. Nothing can separate me from His love. There's no condemnation. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Those are the letters. Which letters were more powerful? Caesar's letters or Jesus' letters written on the heart of one of his believers? Well, we know the the answer to that. The letters written eternally on a human heart obliterated the letters that are no longer there, written on paper or whatever it was. Letters of love destroyed the letters of hatred. One greater than Caesar was there, present in the room. He had met Saul... He had commanded Saul. He had given Saul the ability to obey. Saul had obeyed. He had gotten up. He had gone to the city. He had cried out. God had sent Ananias. Their stories collided. Their paths collided. They started walking on the way. Three days, two men, one way, together. They're brothers. See, the gates of hell that day received this incredible blow, devastating blow from the church. Even in the midst of this severe persecution, the gates of hell were devastated that day. The greatest enemy of the church became its greatest spokesman that day. Look what God did. And what did our second man, Ananias, learn? We don't know for certain, but perhaps he learned... And at least we can certainly learn that no one, no one, no one is outside the reach of the great shepherd. No one. There's not a person in your life or that you will ever meet. He learned that the long walk down straight street and the obedience it had represented was worth everything. Even if he had to die, he knew that to live was Christ and to die was gain. He had learned that all that the prophets had written about the Messiah came to pass right before his eyes. The prophets had prophesied, I'm going to send my servant. He will make your paths straight. So he watched Saul's crooked way, the crooked path that Saul was on, become straight very humorously on the street called Straight, which, by the way, if you go to Damascus, you can still see this street today. It's the longest, here's a little known fact, it's the longest continuously occupied street in the world. So, there you go. He learned 
that the power of the resurrected Christ calls enemies into the family and then sends the family out to suffer, to love, and even to die for the sake of his glory. Ananias appears, as I said, in just these two accounts in the book of Acts. That's all we know of him. Many of the writers, theologians, have said he's one of the unsung heroes of the faith. I'd love to talk with him and just hear about the meeting that he had with Saul after that conversion. What did you do? What did you talk about? How did you compare stories? How did you just be just amazed with one another saying, look what God has done. Look what God's going to do. So what do we do with this on John W. W. Elliott Drive, Frisco, Texas, 75033, in the year 2013? There's two kinds of people in this room, just as there are every Sunday. There are people who are like Saul at the beginning of the story. They may not look like him. They may not be making murderous threats. But if they don't know God, no matter how religious they look, no matter, no matter how right they look, no matter how wrong they look, if they don't know this one, that when he says... Why are you persecuting me? They need to know him. They, there's only one way. Listen, all, 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 every one of us in this room, at one point or another, had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. People who are here today who are believers in Jesus are believers because God initiated, God shined the light into their, into their hearts, He made Jesus known, and He gave them the ability to respond, just like He did for Saul. And if that's you today, we want to have some of the disciples who are in this room lay hands on you and pray for you that you might receive the Holy Spirit. That's the first command. Because God says to Saul, rise, go, and I'll show you what you have to do. Here's the first thing. Believe, repent, turn from your way, turn to the way, and you'll hear these words. You're my beloved child. Brother and sister to everyone who is a believer. Your past has been washed away. Your sins have been washed away. There is therefore now and never any condemnation. You will never be judged. That can happen on the street called John W. Elliot today. So we want to pray for you in just a few minutes. If that's you, I'll ask you to come up and we'll pray. Probably for most people in this room, we want to swing our attention and look at Ananias. He was a believer. Probably most of you in this room are believers. Your sins have already been washed away. You know from the truths we've been studying over the last six weeks that there's no condemnation for you now or ever. That the love of God will never be separated from you. You cannot be separated from it. You belong to Him. He's yours. You also know from Romans 8 that suffering is going to be in your story. It's a promise. If you want to be glorified with Him, you will suffer with Him. And it's a glorious promise because this, this God that we know, have come to know as Jesus, takes enemies, compels them to come into the family, invites them, compels them, and then He takes His family and He says, you're on mission with Me. The mission is to love. There's going to be suffering. There's going to maybe be death, but there's going to be glory. After all of these light and momentary things that we've heard about. So if that's you, every day you need to hear these twin truths. There's no condemnation for me. Nothing can separate me from his love. There are wonderful commands for me to obey. 
How many of you have ever shared the gospel with somebody the way that Jesus shared the gospel with Saul? First you blind them. Then you tell them to get up, go into the city and wait until you get instructions. Then you send this strange guy to come and lay hands on you and pray for you. It's probably not our typical evangelistic method around here, but it did work in this particular case. But what we see in this story is that the amazing love of God which comes in and says to Saul, your sins, though they are many, are wiped out. You've been persecuting my people, which means you've been persecuting me. I forgive you. There's no condemnation now or ever for you. So you know that. Now, I've got things for you to do. And that's what we need to hear. We need to look at the example of Ananias and realize when God said go, he had some fears and questions, but he went. Simple obedience. There's no condemnation, but there are clear commands. These two go together. This is how we avoid the twin pits, the twin ditches of legalism and license. I have to earn my salvation. No, that's a lie. Now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. Go on sinning, that grace may increase. No, that's a lie. How do we avoid those? We do what happened here. We hear the Lord say, rise and go. Go love. Go ask for forgiveness. Go, young mother. Again, you're, you, you are so upset with that little child who is driving you crazy. He would drive me crazy too. You lost your temper with him yesterday. You became impatient with him yesterday. You just became hopeless yesterday. Guess what? You woke up this morning. Here's your launching pad. No condemnation. My mercies are new today. But rise and go and love him. You have no idea what I've got planned for this little one. He may be the very one who's going to die so that someone else might live. He may be the very one who's going to live so that others will come to know this Jesus. He may be in an Ananias. He may be a Stephen. I've given you this momentous task. And yes, you blew it yesterday. Guess what? I have sweet conviction for you. I have no condemnation for you. Rise and go. At the end of today, guess what? You're going to be one day closer to glory. What are you going to do with today? Parents of teens and teens relationship, there's rebellion, there's lost hearts. Maybe he's a good kid, maybe he's a rebel, maybe she is just off. What can we learn from, from the story of Ananias? Listen, God's stronger than all of that. He calls people, he compels them to come in that are even his enemies. If he can save Saul, he can save your child. Even if your child is an adult, married, and has children or grandchildren, it is never too late. God majors. He specializes in impossible. That's what we see in this story. This was impossible. Would Ananias have ever come up with this idea? The God of the universe said, your path, your path, cross on the path. The way. How many times is that going to happen to you between now and the time that Jesus comes back? Husbands and wives, you're struggling to love or honor your spouse. Maybe because of something he or she is doing. <laughs> Maybe because of the baggage that we, read, we heard this morning. Uh, probably because of both. But guess what? In your struggles, in the firefight that you're in, in the jungle where you're fighting, remember this story. Because there are letters written on your heart. 
there's no condemnation. You woke up this morning, your launching pad, the field that you were planted in is a field of love. No one can separate you or your spouse from his love. And there are clear commands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, see to it that you respect, that you honor, that you love your husbands. Those commands don't run contrary to the free gift of grace. They come with it. They're letters written on our heart from the one who's both the Savior of the world, but also the one who is the Lord of all. He's our Father. He's our brother. He's our Lord. We get to obey Him. Maybe you're a single, and you're so focused on what you don't have right now, a spouse that you're going to get to love and serve and lay your life down for the rest of your life, that you're missing opportunities today to love and serve and lay your life down for the very people that God has currently brought around you. Guess what? There's no condemnation for you. Rise and repent. Rise, go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? I want to be like Ananias. Here I am. Lord, call to me. You say that your sheep hear your voice. I want to hear your voice today. What do you have for me to do? How can I serve? How can I lay my life down? I know that you are God who calls and compels your enemies to come into your family and then you send your families and members out on a mission, a love mission, a suffering mission, a death mission. I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. It's not about me. It's about Him. It's about His glory. And at the end of this day, I'm going to be one day closer to glory. Finally, the last thing, and this, this is a hard word. I have a hard word that I feel like the Lord gave us as a leadership team, has given us over the last number of weeks. Um, Saul heard a hard word. Ananias heard a hard word. Didn't change at all. They're standing before God. They're standing before God. Once Saul bowed his knee, reached out and accepted Jesus as his Messiah, the Lord said, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer. So he began to learn about the the mission that he was on then. But they received hard words. I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Ananias, go and lay hands on the greatest hater of me and my people that currently exists on the planet. I want you to go and share the love of Jesus with that guy. Those were hard words. They came to Ananias, a man who was rooted and grounded in love, a man who knew there's no condemnation and nothing can separate me from his love, which we all know. So here's the word. We've heard of unkind things being said. People are... Uh, unfortunately sharing things on emails and Facebook and various things. And, and here's a hard word. It needs to stop. You know, those kinds of things need to stop. It's not the way. On the way, we don't talk like this about other people. We don't share things about other people, even if they're true, that have the net effect of tearing people down. Listen, it's not the way that Ananias went. Ananias died to himself so that Saul, who deserved to die, would not die. That's the way that we, that we love and we give and we give ourselves. 
Here's a letter that's written on all of our hearts that Paul later penned to the Ephesian church. Don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Out of your mouths, he's writing to the whole church. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So all of you in this church who are like Ananias, you're believers, you're forgiven, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation in that word. What there is is sweet conviction and a clear command. I get to, I get to use my mouth, just as we heard from, from Bob earlier, that First Peter passage, to glorify God and to build up the church. So everything I write... Everything I tweet, everything I put on Facebook, everything I say, everything I say through my facial expressions needs to be designed specifically to build up. If we go to Frisco Square, I would have a vision that we're over there, we're just different. People come there and they go, you you talk different. There is no tearing down in this church I read people's Facebook pages and all, they point as witnesses to God. They point the direction to the Savior. It's all about Him. It's not all about us. And there's an absence, even among your youth, of unkindness, of criticism, of judgment. Your people seem to know that they've been forgiven and that they're on a mission that calls them to die to themselves and live in, a, in such a way that other people will understand the gospel and hear Brother Saul over and over and over. So listen, this is not a condemning word. We know from what we've studied there is no condemnation. But if you have been in a place where you've been using your words, even against somebody who really deserves negative words, be like Ananias and instead go and bless And lay your life down. And let your words be like this. No corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. But if that's you, here's the good good news. There's other commands that help you. Repent. Turn from this. Get back on the way of good speech. Go to your brother and sister and say, you know what, would you forgive me for that thing I said to you yesterday? I was unkind. And then the other person will have the opportunity to say, in light of all the things that I've done and I've been forgiven for, it is my joy, brother, sister, to to forgive you. Let that become characteristic and let our speech be such that when people hear us, they see our brothers and sisters lifted up. Okay? It's a hard word. It's the word of the Lord. It's a command. Rise and speak with gracious sweetness to each other and about each other and about other people out there as well. Okay? Let's pray. And then if you need prayer, we're going to invite any of you up for prayer. If you're not a believer, we would love to see you come and and receive the Holy Spirit, receive Jesus this morning. If you need prayer for anything else, uh, I'm going to ask the small group leaders and other folks who have prayed to come up, and they'll be available for you. Just please make yourself, uh, just avail yourself of that opportunity. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.